there are several announcements before I start the talk. Um, there's been a break in the water line, and um, If we examine the teachings of the Buddha, what is essential is to keep the aim of the Buddha in mind. Traditionally, this aim is to help us to awaken, to be liberated. And another way we can look at the Buddha and his purpose is to see the Buddha as a symbol. He's a symbol of a human being, female or male, who has developed all her or his potential. A symbol of a human being who has healed, who has healed the inner division and discovered a deeper inner unity. From this perspective, the aim of the Buddha would be to fully realize our own inner security, our own inner power and possibilities, to unfold fully from within, just like a flower does if the flower has the right conditions. This potential is something we inherit when we take birth. And the path is one of discovering and creating the right conditions for ourselves to open. There is not always a visible or tangible connection between our life within an intensive retreat and our life outside of retreat. As we are approaching the end of the three-month course, it is quite natural for most people to be experiencing at least some degree of fear about leaving the retreat. There may be a few occasional moments when the thought may appear that the only sane thing to do is to ordain and live in a monastery for the rest of your life. (laughs) It may seem that these conditions of intensive retreat are the only right conditions for liberation. So I'm choosing to explore some of what are called the Ten Paramis tonight, because to me they seem to be the essence of the interconnectedness of the heart and the mind and our actions in the world. Being in and out of retreat can be seen as complementary rather than opposites. One learns to come to retreat to deepen one's awareness and not just to escape from the world. The paramis are the foundation for understanding the connection 
between going deeply inside oneself and the world of action. It is learning about the union of action and wisdom. The ten paramis are traditionally defined as the accumulated force of purity in the mind. In other words, inner qualities that can be developed which facilitate a healthy mind and life. When the Bodhisattva made a vow to become a Buddha, he spent countless lifetimes perfecting the paramis. He saw them as the contributory conditions to enlightenment. These ten are giving, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truth, resolution, or determination, love, or metta, and equanimity. Each parami is essential for awakening and opening, and each parami affects the other parami. They're very interdependent. Most important, each one involves the world of action and the world of wisdom. So they're very important for creating a balanced atmosphere in our inner and our outer life. They apply to our daily life situations as well as our time on intensive retreat. They can be said to nurture a true harmony within a person, within one's relationships, in one's community, and in the universe. Mahatma Gandhi has said, I do not believe that an individual may gain spiritually and that those that surround him suffer. I believe in non-duality. I believe in the essential unity of human beings, and for that matter, all that lives. Therefore, I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains with him or her. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. The first parami is that of dana, or generosity. Traditionally, it's defined as the volition of relinquishing oneself and one's belongings. It is first in the order of the ten because it is something that most people can practice. 
it is common to all human beings and because it's supposedly the easiest and traditionally it is said to be practiced in three ways by the giving of material things the giving of fearlessness and the giving of the truth or the Dhamma In the scriptures, it is said that good returns to the one who gives without concern, just as the boomerang returns to the one who threw it without concern. If you were here the night that the story of Jumping Mouse was read, In the Native American culture, there is said to be what is called the giveaway. For different reasons, a death, a celebration, a retribution, or a vow, or whatever, a person or a family in this culture will give away everything that they own everything. In the predominant culture which most of us live in, happiness or abundance is defined as material gain. Yet in this culture, giving away everything that you possess is seen as a way of renewal. It's the deepest source of happiness because it frees one of attachment. It is an act of courage and wisdom because one knows that good will return to not only oneself but to all beings because one is truly letting go one is not grasping. Chief Seattle said that all things are connected like the blood that unites us all. So one gives from the wisdom that all beings are relatives. It is not that a person is good forgiving and evil for not giving. It is something very different. It is a spontaneous action. It is based on the heart of compassion and of wisdom. Some moments we're aware of the interconnectedness of things. We have glimpses of the ecology of energy. We see that life is a constant transformation of energy. It's a kind of recycling. And when we're sitting here, a lot of times I'm sure you've tuned into that we're all sharing on this very deep level all the time. So when we're able to let go, to give spontaneously, 
This reinforces the sense of we are the world. We extend beyond the body, beyond the conceptual boundary of I. And we share from the very center of our being, which is the center of the universe. In every relationship, there is a subject and an object. At times, we can feel in our relationships the love between the subject and object. It's beyond relationship. It's beyond subject and object. It's like the love between our eyes and the rose on the altar. The love between our ears and the rain. Or the love between ourselves and another human being. We can learn to live by this love between. Learn to express that wisdom. In this way, it's a way of waking up to our own truth, our own inner dignity. It's a balance of our heart and mind. When one is committed to living a life of generosity, and it's something to keep in mind when you go back to a busy daily life, if you do that. (laughs) Such a choice. (laughs) It's important to learn to balance time that is given outwardly and the time that you nourish yourself inwardly. One has to learn to trust one's own limits and to understand that your limits will change every day. Mother Teresa has said that giving isn't giving until it hurts. It is important to extend our limits and to be able to respond in our own way to the magnitude of suffering on this planet. Yet it's also important to recognize that we are limited and that the suffering is immense so that we learn to take care of our own heart as well as others. Freedom is being able to give to others balanced by not having to give. If the giving is derived from the need to give, if it is a compulsion, if it's the basis of our identity, then this is not freedom. It's not compassion. And it's not wisdom, it's being imprisoned. It can appear to be very spiritual, and it looks very inspiring, 
if one is constantly giving and responding to others. Yet if one is doing this from an inner should, or from a pattern of not knowing that there's an alternative, that it's okay to nurture oneself as well as others, there is potential for a lot of resentment and burnout. Resentment builds when it's assumed that we should give, or if one feels that one has no choice, that one cannot say no. If, di- if giving doesn't come from within one's heart, one will eventually feel ripped off and unappreciated. And this is a hard balance to learn. I remember last summer when I sat the three-month course, I was doing walking in the lower walking room, and there was another woman down there also walking. And I had a chocolate. I'm sure some of you have experienced this too. I had a chocolate, and I just, just in this very spontaneously, just went up to her and gave her the chocolate. And in that moment, it felt so pure. It's so, it seems like a very simple story, but it was so pure, the giving and the receiving. There was such a lightness and a joy. And this is what I mean by the love between. That one sees the relationship between sharing, letting go, and happiness. And then one feels immediately the benefit of giving. Part of the reason I'm bringing this up is because part of giving is being able to receive. Giving implies receiving. And receiving requires also a letting go almost more of a letting go than giving, because one really has to let go of control. True receiving is surrendering. To allow others to give to us is just as important as giving to others. Receiving enables trust to grow. My father's been in the hospital for the past nine days. And three days ago, I got a little note from my aunt who writes once a year. And I didn't know he was in the hospital. And the note said, the only thing it said was, I'm praying for your father in the hospital. (laughs) So you can imagine. It was quite a shock, and I thought, well, she's either really gone senile or she's, you know, telling me the truth. So I got on the phone, and I called my stepmother. And sure enough, he'd been in there for eight days. And it was so painful. It was 
major surgery. He has cancer, and I just can't begin to tell you how painful it was to not know. One thing that I learned quite well from him was that there's this idea that strength means being invulnerable. And that has built up such a wall in him that he couldn't come to tell his daughters that he, he could have died and I would have never been able to say goodbye. And I think about what it must be to be on the level of not being able to receive on that kind of a level, because I live on that level a lot myself. I learned, I learned the tendency quite well. And I think what was most painful was that I missed being able to send him my love when he needed it. I missed being able to send what I felt I could give, my support, my energy. And I say this because it's something that I think affects us all very deeply in our relationships. It's so important to balance giving and receiving inner strength and vulnerability because it cultivates a harmony of interconnectedness. Vulnerability breaks down the the barriers between us. So we each have our own unique way of balancing this. The last aspect of giving that I wanted to speak about is the gift of fearlessness. And this is a gift of fearlessness to other beings. This fearlessness actually is based on the parami of virtue, which is following the precepts. If one doesn't harm other beings, other beings will trust you and not be afraid of you. This is seen as a beautiful gift that we can all develop to give to all beings. You can imagine what it feels like to live in such a way that no one would fear you and that you wouldn't cause harm to anyone so that any being can trust you. So that brings us to the parami of virtue, or sila. This is seen, the perfection of sila is seen as moral restraint and moral purity. If virtue is looked at wisely, one sees that one is not bound by acting good or acting evil, 
being a good little girl or a good little boy. One acts from a clear, open heart. This isn't obedience. It's a spontaneous discipline. One's acts are based on the ecology of the heart. Sometimes I think that virtue isn't a word that most people like to hear, yet it cannot be underestimated. It's the crucial factor of whether a person is spiritually alive or spiritually dead. Traditionally, the guidelines for sila are the five precepts, not killing, not taking what is not given, sexual discretion, telling the truth, and not taking intoxicants which cloud the mind and make it dull. These don't have to be seen as commandments. They're guidelines which we can use for not harming ourselves, our friends, all beings on the planet and in the universe. Most of it is really common sense, seeing that to live in harmony and happiness, one must listen to one's heart and really want other beings to be free from hurt, just as I want to be free from hurt. This is a quote also from the scriptures. In accomplishing the difficult task of self-protection, virtue is superior to troops of elephants, horses, chariots, and infantry. It's a somewhat dated quote. <laughs> as well as such devices as mantras, spells, and blessings. For it depends on oneself. It does not depend on others. And one has a great sphere of influence. Thus it is said, the Dharma protects those who live by the Dharma. A helpful way of working with sila is to see what actions or speech leads to harmony within oneself and what actions and speech cause harm. There is such an enormous lack of self-understanding an enormous lack of true self-love and intimacy. Because of this, there is a scarcity of feeling of warmth and love within. If there's a feeling of intimacy within one's own heart, there is an ability to connect with another person's heart or another being's heart. 
And if one does this, one just cannot harm. One doesn't need to steal, kill, be sexually exploitative, lie, or be self-destructive with intoxicants. So how does one become intimate with one's own heart? It's like we need to fall in love with ourselves. It's impossible for me to go into virtue without stressing falling in love with ourselves, becoming intimate with our own heart, which is being aware of and trusting one's own feelings. And by this I mean emotions. For most of us, it's a long, hard road to being true to our heart, which includes all of our feelings. Awareness of feelings isn't a total path to liberation, yet it's important to understand that because we learned not to express our painful feelings as children. We did this to spare our parents and others so that they would at least love part of ourselves. We mostly learn to shut down and suppress a lot of our feelings. And by doing that, we learn to shut down our vitality, our aliveness, and our love. Part of our practice is that we're opening to our bodies and minds, and that which, and that which we shut down will surface again. So along the way in our lifetimes, we need to open to the pain that we inflict on ourselves and the pain we inflict on other beings as we all learn to mature. We're all learning to grow up. Opening to this process allows us to be compassionate and forgiving for ourselves and for all beings. We all share the ability to hurt. And to hurt within ourselves. And we all have been hurt. And we've all hurt other beings. And we also all have the capacity to, de to develop carefulness and an inner strength that is stronger than the woundings and the wounds. Awareness is the great protector. We learn to accept and fully feel the feelings, not have to take them personally. Acknowledge the pain and let it go. 
and let it go, (laughs) and let it go. If we don't do this, then they stay buried in our body and mind, and our bodies either torment us or we are compelled to act out the hurt over and over in the same melodramas, harming ourselves and others. One metaphor for this is to look at nature, to see the interdependence of all things and the fragility of our planet, our ecosystem. When I went to Switzerland this past summer, I learned that over 50% of the alpine trees are dying from pollution there. And supposedly, there's no amount of money that can be spent, and there's no amount of action that can be taken to prevent some devastating avalanches. The fragility of our global system, which is an alive planet, one can see its interconnectedness, and it's so clear. Yet there is the same kind of fragility within our hearts. All of our feelings are so easily hurt. So the guidelines for virtue are to check in with one's own heart and feelings and see how one's actions will affect our own or other beings' lives. This is essential to remember when one is living a life of action in the world. It's usually much easier to follow the precepts here on retreat than within the busyness of our lives. So it takes a commitment to be honest with ourselves and careful Yes, we will sometimes cause pain. And the healing from that will take looking deeply at ourselves and being honest with ourselves and to see the areas in our life we're all different, where we're weak and where we need to be careful. So instead of judging ourselves or each other, we all know we have a lot of mud between our toes. We all have our strengths and our weaknesses, so we really need to help each other. It's important. 
When we break silence, one of the areas to pay attention to initially, its impact is immediate, is right speech. (laughs) You don't have to go too far (laughs) to feel the effect of this one. And I know that we all don't want to hurt anyone through our speech. And for me, this is the most difficult precept. Um, Also, when I was in Switzerland this summer, I was with some yogis from past years here, and we were all sitting around the table discussing last summer's Upandita course. And somebody brought up a person that I was, I have had difficulty with, who I consider my worthy opponent. And I said something negative about the person. And one of the women yogis that I knew from before, she said, gee, I didn't know people from IMS gossiped. And it was like, (laughs) it was such a moment of nakedness. (laughs) I felt like I was in the spotlight. And it was also one of the most freeing moments of my life. Because it was so painful. It was was really painful. Um, I knew that I didn't want to get caught in this game that this person and I seemed to have. And at that moment, I took a vow not to do that anymore. And since that time, I've broken it. (laughs) 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 And it's it's just really hard. (laughs) But I keep wanting to do it. And it's just the way it is. It's like in this particular area and with this particular person, I just have to constantly renew that desire to not do it. And we, I think most of us have certain areas where we do this, where we really know we don't want to do something. We know how much harm it causes, but we still slide into it somehow. So... (laughs) When silence breaks, just keep in mind that this is, being mindful of speech just seems to be something that is very difficult. And, and ask each other for help. You know, if, if, if one thing that I really appreciated about this woman saying, gee, I didn't know people from IMS gossip, is that it really made me see what I was doing. And I knew I didn't want to do that. And it's not to be, not to hurt each other by doing it, but just to see and help each other with this, because it's a hard one. There's so much that can be said about the precepts. Um, 
And I wanted to touch lightly on the guideline of sexual discretion. It seems as if misunderstanding of our own sexuality is an area that I become more and more aware has caused a tremendous amount of pain in this world. The desire for sex can be confused with a desire for closeness or intimacy, a feeling of being cared for or caring for, being cared for, warmth and sharing, an opening with oneself with another. As children, we had very few models of adults being close friends and relating intimately, but not sexually. The journey in coming to understand the difference between sexuality and intimacy and to also understand the connection between sexuality and intimacy can be arduous and also very freeing. If you ask anyone who feels safe enough with you to really be honest with you about their past in regard to their sexuality, There are usually, maybe you might have to look closely, but you can usually see a few twinges of anguish. And hearing the stories, female or male, can open one to a great deal of compassion for us all. As with everything, sexuality can manifest in varying shades between the extremes of repression and indulgence. It can be very sacred and incredibly abusive and exploitative. In most spiritual traditions, To be sexual is to be unspiritual. I think this can be confusing to anyone connected to their feelings. Because sexuality implies such a nakedness and trust and vulnerability. There can be such a potential depth of caring and openness and connection and connection with the universe. If sexuality is connected to one's heart and to one's feelings, if sex has no feelings, no caring, no warmth, It's a personal power being used to satisfy ego needs, which really cannot be satisfied in that way. Because 
there is now openness to the truth of the connection of the energy. Sexuality can be an expression of the love between, an action with heart and with connection and care. So sila, or virtue, is the very lifeblood of the practice. It enables us to come to an intensive retreat and to be free from regrets and mental torments. The Buddha said to wear one's virtue like an adornment. There's no greater beauty and there's no greater protection. He also said that the heart's resolution of the virtuous succeeds on account of his or her purity. It is the foundation for happiness and joy. I was walking along the three-mile loop today and I saw the, this foundation of stones, an old cellar hole. And you've probably heard Sila as the foundation for one's practice. And I thought of the people who worked so hard at putting those stones together, how much work it took to a lot of sweat without, they didn't have the machinery in those days that we have now. And how strong and solid those foundations are because the houses are gone. And Sila is like those cellar holes. It's building the foundation for security and well-being. It's, a sh- it's building a shelter from fear. And it's the greatest power for our lives, in and out of retreat. There's a quote that you've probably heard from me before, if you've heard me in other courses, because it's a beautiful quote about virtue from Srinasargadatta. Without self-realization, no virtue is genuine. When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, You will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, 
you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious circle. Only self-realization can break it. Go for it, resolutely. <laughs> well, there's eight more paramis. <laughs> I knew I was in a little trouble. <laughs> um, Steve and I decided to split the paramis. So he's going to do the second five, but I've kind of blown doing the next three. So I might try to fit some in tomorrow night. Um, but I thought maybe we could do some questions instead of me plowing through the next three as fast as I could. <laughs> Funny. Um, I've been seeing emotions from the heart as the brahmins. A pure mind seems free of that, seems quite clear of emotion. So uh, there like, has been confusion about what arises in the heart being a true thing to follow. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like it isn't always true. The question is that she's been looking at emotions as defilements, emotions in the heart as defilements, and that it can be really hard to trust one's feelings because it's not always clear if it's a defilement or something true. It's a really good question, and um, It has different levels. When one's feeling the energy of an emotion, especially say you're sitting in retreat, sitting in your room at home or whatever, what's what's a problem with an emotion is when we're identified with it. And that's when it's a defilement. So say there's anger in our hearts. If one isn't, if one, the clarity is being able to feel the energy, feel it fully, let it, anger has a life of its own just like happiness, any other mind state, it'll live itself out. And the only problem with it is if we believe it, if we identify with it. And, and what we really have to be careful of is the content. 
that's one level of working with emotion. And, tr- and tr- what's important, though, is that in most of our pasts, what the conditioning is, is to not feel the emotion. And sometimes people use meditation to push away letting the energy come up, come up and live itself out. And so then, if it's something, anger has many levels to it, so if one feels the energy of it and doesn't buy into the content of it, then one isn't a victim of the anger. It's the same with any emotion, with sadness. It's the same thing. With hurt, it's the same thing. It's like, it's, you have to be very careful with the content, but it's, it's essential to feel it because it's there, when it's there. And it's part of our life. It's, it's like we're dead if we don't have emotions. And it's, it's acting on them without feeling them fully and being a victim of them. That's the problem. So say you don't like um, the food that's being served. It's not a problem this year, but last year it was a little bit of a problem with some one yogi I had. And she would come in <laughs> to interviews <laughs> And she would be really angry about the food being served. And there are many levels to it, because what was important was to not stuff it down, not to just say, when anger is there, it's not like you can pretend it's not there. Vipassana is being with what is, so one feels the energy of it, but one has to be extremely careful with being right. Anger is a problem when you start feeling right. It's a real clue (laughs) that you're having problems feeling the energy when you're already in the story of being right. And one's not really feeling it when you're thinking about it. Thinking is usually an avoidance of feeling the energy of an emotion. And so one feels it, and then if it seems appropriate to say something, say they haven't served any protein for two months, (laughs) it might be appropriate, you know, to, to feel the anger. And then very lovingly, it doesn't have to be, you know, I hate this place and I'll never come back to IMS and, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it doesn't have to be that. You can feel the anger and then very lovingly write a note, dear so-and-so, I really think that somebody should look at that there's been no protein for two months. And, and that's, it's being able, sometimes it's very appropriate in one's life to act on, on anger and communicate it, but not the, if one doesn't feel the anger itself and let it live itself out, one, one hurts people, one's a victim of it, one, one is totally caught in being separate and right, and it, it never works 
in the communication. If you feel attacked, if I feel attacked by somebody, I'm usually going to get defensive. It's just a natural thing for us to do. If somebody attacks us, then we're going to defend. And if somebody doesn't like something that I do and says, you know, I wish you wouldn't do this or could we talk about this, mostly there's much more receptivity to listening. So it's just a way, it's, with all of this stuff, it's a way to learn to feel the energy, but to not harm. How, how's that? I, I wasn't even referring to negative mm-hmm. emotions. Mm-hmm. I was referring mm-hmm. to the ones that I love and, ident- and do identify with, but I build my life on it a lot, seeing that many of those emotions are actually really not true. Can you and be more specific? It, it just seems like often the intent behind emotions is manipulation can, rather than real love. Can you say which emotion you're speaking of? In that case, I was thinking of what could be called love and isn't. <laughs> but, um, well, it's just too much talk to me or question. It's just, I'm not in that space right now. Uh-huh. I just saw a lot that a real pure mind state does not contain, uh, or didn't at that time seem to contain many emotions. It's like that bare knowing is almost free of it, and it seems like the emotions are part of what was to be guarded, uh, not in a negative way, but in a way of, of maintaining precepts or maintaining purity. The question is, it's a longer question, but basically, um, wondering about the connection between emotion and love, because when the mind feels very clear, it doesn't seem to have emotion. And I think, again, it's a, it's an my mind goes to very different places with the question. Um, I think one has to be careful of the word detachment and no emotion, because detachment can be a, uh, a, a wall between connecting to things. So connecting to connecting usually implies emotion. You know, say say one looks at the rose up here and there's this just tremendous feeling of joy. There's if one's so detached that one won't feel anything, it means that we're closed down. And so you have to be very careful of what this love means. Love doesn't mean dependence. And, I th- and, and love can, can take on all kinds of colors of dependence. So if you have the sense of not loving all beings, and just loving one or two people, or, or, or one's little circle of friends, it's usually implying that it's not really love, but a dependence. 
so it's, I think that what can happen is that one can be in a relationship with a person or several people and what we think of as love really has all the colors of dependence which brings up a lot of difficulty and it's something we all do until we're totally totally free we'll misinterpret what it is to be detached being able to be detached and being able to be connected and I there's this wonderful quote that I'll read from Trungpa Trungpa um, I'll just read the very last paragraph. Well, I'll read a little bit more than that. (laughs) The warrior who has accomplished true renunciation is completely naked and raw, without even skin or tissue. One is renounced putting on a new suit of armor or growing a thick skin so one's bone and marrow are exposed to the world. One has no room and no desire to manipulate situations. One is able to be quite fearlessly what one is. One is like an island sitting alone in the middle of a lake. Occasional ferry boats and commuters go back and forth between the shore and the island to helping others. One realizes that one will never be able to completely share one's experience with others. The fullness of one's experience is one's own, and one must live with one's own truth. Yet, one is more and more in love with the world. That combination of love affair and loneliness is what enables the person to constantly reach out and to help others. By renouncing one's private world, one discovers a greater universe and a fuller and fuller broken heart. This is not something to feel bad about. It is a cause for rejoicing. That seems to say what I was trying to say between having that balance of wisdom and detachment and the heart of connecting. That seems good. (laughs) So remember to try to keep the silence and to use water sparingly. (laughs) <laughs> There's a question about um, most of us have power around it. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.